0: I want to bring you back to something that's found in 2 Corinthians. This is where we started weeks ago when we started our, our, our journey through what it means to be sanctified. Sanctified means to be made holy, but it also means to be set apart. So this whole series has been called Set Apart. The Bible talks about it often. You know, in the Old Testament, the New Testament, I want you to be set apart. And he's not just talking about being set apart from something, although that matters but more meaningfully, he's talking about being set apart for something or to something or someone. You know, the Bible tells us that we are set apart for God's own possession. We're his own people. And when he says possession, he doesn't mean like a pet or an object. We, we talked about that last week. He means uh, uh, like his sons and daughters, That's, that, that we belong to him, that he's protecting uh, that, that precious value that he's placed in you, that he has called you to his family, to his kingdom. And so when we're called his possession, he's not treating us as an object, he's treating us as his own children. And so he's saying, you're mine, you belong to me and I belong to you. He even says, I'll be a father to you. And you may say, well, God doesn't belong to me. Well, he does in the sense that I belong to my son. I'm his father. That is by calling myself his father, I'm giving him a sense of I'm his, I'm his father. And just like this, God has promised he'd be your father, he'd be your God, you'll be his people, you'll be his sons and daughters, and that is huge. We're actually going to read that uh, passage right now in the scripture, where we started and we're going to bring it right back around um, to why are we sanctified, how are we doing this, how are we living a life set apart for God, to God, unto God, how am I living a Christian life, how can I live that Christian life, how can I be different? not for the sake of being different, but for the sake of being like him. How can I do that effectively without just totally being frustrated, without um, living in some sort of dead works, without um, constantly being fearful that I'm going to mess up, without constantly being ashamed when I do? How can I truly live that Jesus-filled, Spirit-empowered life in reverence for God. And so this is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter six. And, and just to, to bring you back and stir up your memory if you've been with us through these past few weeks, this chapter starts out with Paul urging the Corinthians to open up their hearts. They've closed their hearts to Paul, to the apostles, to their leadership. Uh, maybe not even consciously, but they they they're they're somewhat shut off. And Paul is telling them that what's holding them back as a church is that they won't open up. And I don't mean open up like you would in a in a group therapy session, like they won't talk. I'm talking about they won't open up their heart. They're sta- he says, you're not restrained by us, you're restrained by their own affections. I'm asking you, he says, our hearts are wide open to you. And the proof that our hearts are wide open to you is that we've opened our mouth freely to you. We've we've been honest with you, we've shared with you. He says, in the same way, like children, would you open up your hearts to us? Then he goes on and he says that you shouldn't be bound together with unbelievers. He's he's explaining that that you know there's two parts to this. You've got to open up to the people God's put in your life, but you also need to be careful that you're not, you're not uh, 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 identifying more with, with this, this world than you are with the kingdom of God and, and binding yourself to unbelievers. He says that's part of the problem is that you, you, you're not seeing yourself as different, that you have, 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 have been so obsessed and concerned with fitting in your culture that you forgot you were made for something greater. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says in verse 15, What harmony has Christ with Belial? That's another name for the devil. What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And that means we are the temple of the living God. It means God lives amongst us. He lives in us when he says we he's talking about God's church his people we are the place that God dwells God doesn't live in a building anymore and he never really he never was confined to a building but you know in the Old Testament you know they had the tabernacle where they would go and meet God and and that's where the priests would offer sacrifices to God and 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 then it they transitioned to a, a a temple that was static, that was in the same place, beautiful place where God's presence dwelt. That doesn't mean it was the only place God's presence was, but it was it was a place for that housed his presence. Now in the New Testament, he says, it's not about a building, it's about my people. I will dwell among my people. Somehow we are a holy place for God in, in a corporate sense, in a, in a large sense, like the people of God, God dwells on us. And then in a personal sense, he says, you you personally, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in you, and, and so that's that's a huge thought. So then he says, uh, "We are the temple of the living God." Just as God said, "I will dwell in them," and this is an Old Testament prophecy that has now been fulfilled through Jesus. I will dwell in them, and I will walk among them, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, what's the promise? I'll be your God, you'll be my people. I will dwell with them, I'll walk among them. Therefore, because of that, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch what's unclean and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you'll be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Make room for us in your hearts, we wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. And so this is such an important thought. In, in, in between these, this like in the brackets of open up your heart to us, don't be bound together with unbelievers. like open up your heart to us, but you gotta know who you're opening your heart to. He's talking about, come out, be separate, be God's people, let him walk among you, know that he has promised this, and so this is our response to that promise. And then he, he comes right back to the original thought. So because of that, Open your heart. And, and, and this is something that I think a lot of Christians struggle to understand, but a lot of what's keeping us from opening our heart is, is, an, is not understanding how God's working in us and not really giving Him that place where we are fully uh, giving ourselves to God and letting Him be exactly who He says He is supposed to be in our life, our Father, our God, our Lord, our, our King, you know, all of these things. But look at this, you know through all of this, One of the things that we always have to look out for when we're talking about living holy lives and sanctified lives, it's very easy for someone to hear a grace-filled, faith-filled, spirit-filled message about this and and begin to project their own doctrine or belief onto it and and, and maybe their own fears onto it. Because sometimes we'll hear that and somebody will say, you know, if if we're going to follow God, this is what he says, this is how we live holy And someone will preach that message of holiness, that message of righteousness. Now remember, righteousness starts with what Jesus did and it ends with what Jesus did. Righteousness is not something you could earn. It's something that was given to you by Jesus. He became sin who knew no sin, the scripture says, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So we were made righteous by his blood. That righteousness was imputed to you. You couldn't earn that. Righteousness means I'm right with God. I'm I'm just before God. I, I am seen as, as perfect, as cleansed. Now, you, you couldn't live to that standard. That's a perfect standard. Not one of us is perfect in our own strength. And so Jesus did that for you. Now, when that righteousness, that gift of righteousness that the Bible says we receive by faith, when that gift of righteousness is, is imparted to us and we receive Jesus and we are made clean by His blood, by His sacrifice, We've been put to death on that cross. We were buried with him in that grave and we have been resurrected a new creation with his resurrection. When you know that, then that righteousness is more than just your status. It becomes your lifestyle. When you recognize that I am righteous by faith in what Jesus did for me, you live from that place of righteousness. So you grow in righteousness. Jesus said, seek first before anything else, above everything else. Your priority in life is seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. And all those other things will be added to you. So what he's saying, listen, if I've been made righteous, why do I have to seek, keep seeking his righteousness? Because I've been made righteous and yet he, he wants to see his righteousness in my life. I'm supposed to live from that place of righteousness and live righteously and and act differently than I used to to act, to think differently than I used to think and live differently and speak differently because I am different. And I'm not different for the sake of being different. I'm different because I want to become like him. See, that's the key. A lot of times people will hear a message like this and, and they'll hear it in a reactionary way. Like we're simply looking at a broken world and saying, we don't want to be like that. So we're going to do our own thing. But that's really not the message of sanctification in the scripture. I mean, certainly it's part of it saying like, that's, that's what it looks like when you walk in darkness. Don't do that. But it's, that, that thought in the New Testament never stands by itself. It's always a part of a larger idea, which is be like Jesus, you know, let his spirit come out in your life. Galatians says, if we live by the Spirit, let's walk by the Spirit. Let's act, let's live our lives by the Spirit. And when that happens, you're not going to have the fruit of the flesh, which is strife, ambition, selfish ambition, jealousy, all those, all those things. But what you're going to have instead is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. You're going to have those things coming out in your life because you're living by the Spirit. You're walking by the Spirit, that's why it matters, is that we're not merely reacting to a world gone wrong, we are reacting to a God who is right. And that's a big distinction. Listen, you know, in in, uh, Jesus's day, there were different uh, schools of religious thought, there were different sects within Judaism. A lot of times, we kind of lump everybody in the same picture, but they weren't all in agreement, just like Christianity's not all in agreement today. You know, in Jesus's day, he had arguments with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And those guys did not get along at all. I mean, the Sadducees could be described, I mean, although it doesn't fit perfectly, they could be described as the religious left. They were the ones that, that uh, you know, were very intellectual. Uh, they wanted to fit in with the Greek culture. They, 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 they had kind of done away with all the miraculous stuff. You know, they didn't really believe in a resurrection from the dead. They believed once you were dead, that was it. They, they, That was a stumbling block for them. The very idea of resurrection was something they tripped over. They didn't like Jesus for those reasons. The Pharisees, who we see a lot of because they were kind of the, the, the powers in the places Jesus mostly ministered in, the Pharisees we were reacting to the world in a different way. While the Sadducees were reacting to the world around them and saying, we need to adapt, we need to appease the Romans, and we need to kind of find a way to fit in this culture, the, the Pharisees, and I'm way oversimplifying it, but the Pharisees were, were reacting to it in a different way. They were saying the culture is bad, so we need to be different. And often the way they, they said we need to be different is by taking God's law and adding on top of it, making it even harder for people to live it out. These would have been the religious right, you know, those that were ultra conservative. You had different groups like the Essenes and you had all these others, but somehow Jesus didn't fit with any of them. And he often found himself at odds with these. I mean, the Pharisees at least believed in the miraculous. They at least honored the word of God, but they had added their own traditions so heavily on top of it. They were so reactionary to the world around them that they were so afraid that the sin was gonna get in that they were offended that Jesus would eat with sinners and that he would reach those people. They saw society as as just corrupt and collapsing. And so Jesus going to society and healing those people and ministering and loving those people was offensive to them. So you see that these are some of the same things we deal with today. If you are merely reacting to the world around you, whether it's like we all need to adapt and uh, we just need to change our morality and our values as society changes theirs, that's not godly. I mean, that that's presuming that society is always right. And and I don't know if you've noticed, but society is rarely right. We're, we as humans are so flawed. The only perfect, the only righteous, the only just and good is God. And, and any goodness and righteousness and justice we get comes from Him. So we can't make our own righteousness. We can't make our own justice. In the same way, if I'm reacting to the world like, I just don't want to be like them. I need to be different. And I'm more reacting to them than to God, well, then I'm just going to have a bunch of dead works. I'm going to create all these legalistic ideas that that this is how you serve God that God didn't even say. I'm going to make it more about outward behavior than inward transformation, and that's just as destructive. And a lot of times when people hear about sanctification, they project those things. They'll think, you know, well, you're just talking about works or, you know, you're uh, you're, you're just telling us we have to, it's all about what we do. No, it's not. I really believe that faith and works go together. I believe you can't be saved by your works. I believe that your works could never get you to God. I believe the only way to God is through faith. But I believe that faith produces action. It produces corresponding action. It changes your life. And so a lot of times, uh, you, know, we ha- you might have somebody that says, well, uh, if God, would ch- if God wants to change me, he'll change me. But that would make the Bible kind of irrelevant because the whole scripture is full of instructions to the church if you weren't meant to take that and do something with it, like if everything just happened automatically, as long as you love Jesus, and as long as you're saved, he'll do all the changing, and you don't even have to think about it, it'll just automatically happen, then you could just throw the Bible out. You could throw the New Testament out because most of the New Testament is telling you who you are in Christ, telling you who he is, telling you who you are in him, and then telling you how to live that out. And it's full of examples of like, don't do that, do this. But it's never separated from the truth that it's not you that's doing this in your own strength. It's not you that's doing this so that God would love you more. It's you doing this from a place of, I am loved. Remember, he says, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Beloved, he's reminding you, you're not doing this to be loved. You're doing this because you're loved. You're not doing this to be accepted. You're doing this because you're accepted. You know, I had the thought the other day or... Might have even been today that that uh, you know we can't follow Jesus without following Jesus. And that sounds stupid, right? That sounds redundant. Uh, I mean, what a, what a weird statement. But what I mean by that is is if you're going to follow Jesus, you got to follow Jesus. If you're going to, uh, you can't follow Jesus without following him. I know that still sounds confusing, but let me explain it. If you want to follow Jesus and and be near to him relationally and say I'm a Jesus follower. I'm a Christian. I'm I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, you can't say that merely because you like the idea of it. If you're going to say, I'm following him, you actually have to go where he tells you to go. If he says, come, we're going this way, then you got to go this way. Even if you don't really want to go that way, following Jesus means following Jesus. I'm, I'm going to do what he tells me to do. I'm going to stop when he says, this is the place we're stopping. I'm going to go when he says, it's time to go and, and go this way. I can't have a relationship with Jesus without really having that obedience to what he says. He says, why do you call me Lord? You don't do what I say. In the same sense, well, we can't follow him uh, um, in obedience without relationship with him. Like I can't say I am a follower of Jesus' commands and teachings and moral uh, uh, standards without having a relationship with him because uh, the Bible tells us that the law in itself could not save us. We always fell short. So if I am just following Jesus and saying, I'm going to do what you tell me to do, but I don't trust in him to do it in me or to empower me to do that. If it's not Christ in me, that's my hope of glory. Then I will continually enter into a cycle of, of guilt and shame and condemnation because I'll continually fall short. And every time I fall short, I'll beat myself up more and more. One of the great things about really living a sanctified life, the core of it is him. Watch, in this passage, he's not saying the world is this way, so you act this way. He's not saying you, uh, this, is, this is the better way to live, so do this. He's saying this is what God has promised. The whole idea of sanctification is not centered on you, it's centered on God. And the core and the key to sanctification, the core and the key to living a life that's pleasing to God and that God created you for, living the original human life he created all of us for, is to know God, is to fear God, is to love God. When I say fear, please understand, I'm not saying being scared of God. I'm talking about the biblical idea of the fear of the Lord, which is a reverence for him, a respect and awe. You know, how do you know you fear somebody? Uh, you fear, you, the, the one you fear is the one you're reacting to all the time, right? Like if you walk into a room and there are five people in that room Uh, probably one of them has more weight with you and you care more about what they think, about what you say and how you're behaving. Like if you and me and the queen were sitting in Buckingham Palace in her meeting room and I don't know how we got that meeting, but let's just pretend we had a meeting with the queen. I guarantee when you're speaking, you'd be more concerned with how she's reacting to your words than how I'm reacting to your words. You and I might be there in the same room but you're far more aware of what the queen thinks how the queen is responding what how the queen is looking at you these are things that matter because she's an important person i'm not saying that that relationship our relationship wouldn't be important but you recognize there's gravity in that room there's weight in that room this is a very important person and that importance has gravity to it kind of everything is is, is begins to rotate around that we live our life reacting people. Do people like me? Do people accept me? Do people love me? Do people understand me? I hate being misunderstood. And in doing so, it changes our behavior. It changes the way we talk. It changes the way we think. What God is calling us back to is being so aware of Him that in every situation, in every place, in every moment we are reacting to God, our eyes are on Him and we care, what do you think about this, God? Like when I'm having a conversation with you that I understand there are three people in the room right now, me, you, and God. And what does God think about how I'm speaking to you or how I'm reacting to how you, what you're saying to me? How am I living my life before God? When I fear the Lord, I care more about what he thinks than anyone else. When I fear people, I care what they think more than anything else. When I fear God, the Bible says, the blessed is the person that fears the Lord for he will not fear bad news. He will fear no other thing, you know, because really uh, who you fear is what you, the one you fear is the one that you think is biggest, the one you think has the most uh, power and weight. And so when I'm looking at a situation and it's threatening to me and it causes a, a fear in me that's not a godly fear, it's, a, it's, be, it's, it's scared, it's cowardice, it's, it's causing me to back off. What's happening is I see something that's bigger than me. And I'm looking at myself in light of that thing or that person, that situation, and I'm saying, that's much bigger than me and that causes me to fear. And that's not a good kind of fear because you react to that. But when I have a fear of the Lord, then I'm not really saying, I'm not looking at the situation in light of, is that thing bigger than me? Is that person bigger than me? Is that situation bigger than me? I'm saying, God is bigger than all of those things. In the Old Testament, the Israelites sent 12 spies into the promised land to see if God was right about what kind of land it was. Ten of them came back and said God was right, but here's the problem. There are giants, there are forts, there are armies. We can't do this. We're like grasshoppers in our sight. We must be grasshoppers to them. There's no way we can take the land. Their focus was on the enemy. Their focus was on... The greatness and the largesse of the enemy against them. Two spies came back, Joshua and Caleb, and said, This there are giants, there are forts, but if God told us to go in, surely He'll give us the land. And those people we fear are going to be prey to us. Those giants are going to be like our food. What are they saying? They're saying, Come on, guys, I'm not denying that that's bigger than us. I'm saying God is greater than that. God is greater than all of it. So we must obey God. Joshua and Caleb had a fear of the Lord, whereas the 10 spies that were evil had a fear of people. And a lot of times that's why we do or don't do these things in life because we're, we're responding or reacting to the wrong thing. And I want you to see here that to know God, to love God, to fear God is found here. I mean, to know Him. He says, I'll dwell in them and I'll walk among them. He's talking about a relationship with Him. See, this is the core of why we live the life we live. It's focused on Him. It's not really focused on being a good Christian or fitting in at church or having the pastor approve of you. It's really about honoring God and knowing God. You see, if you don't know God, you can't really love like God. And if you say you know God, but you don't love, you don't know God. That's what First John says. Anybody that says, I know God, but does not love, is a liar. And so when we know God, we're changed. You know, uh, uh, the, the scripture says, each one of you, must know how to possess your own bodies in sanctification and not go into sexual immorality, fornication, pornography, adultery, all those things as the Gentiles who do not know God. He says, here's the point, the Gentiles don't know God. That's why they act that way. But you, you can possess your own body in sanctification. You can have control of yourself because you know God and knowing God changes everything. He's not telling you that the Gentiles are dirty, awful people. He's saying there's a reason they don't, they're do not they not able to control that. There's a reason they're walking in that way. It's because they don't know God. You see, the key here is when you know God, it changes you. To know Him, I'll dwell in them, I'll walk among them. To fear Him, I'll be their God. They'll reverence me as God. They'll be my people. See, fearing Him as God is reverencing and is honoring Him. It's also... Being brave, knowing that there's nothing. If God is my helper, what can people do to me? What situation will I encounter that I need to be afraid of? And to love God. And to be loved by God. I'll be their father. They'll be sons and daughters to me. When you live from that place of knowing God, fearing God, loving God, sanctification through the blood of Jesus because of what he did is something that will just flow out of your life. You'll want to live in a way that's pleasing to him because you you know him, you love him, you fear him. You want God's plan for your life. You want his will for your life. You want your life to reflect his. And when he says, be holy as I'm holy, you know what that means. I want to read you something from the book of Hebrews that is so huge to me. And, and it, it strikes me every time I read it. He speaks of these people that had been kicked out of their synagogues. They had, had their property seized. They had had uh, um, a lot of things taken away from them because they chose to be identified as Christians. The book of Hebrews is written to, no surprise, Hebrew people. It's written to Jewish people. They were being ostracized from their own culture because they chose Jesus. You know, in the book of Revelation, Jesus writes seven letters through John to seven different churches. One of those letters is to a church in Sardis, and he says to them, I will not, to the one who overcomes, I will not blot your name from my book of life. And a lot of times we go, that's cool. What does that mean? Well, he's referring to the fact that many of those people were being blotted, having their names struck from the list of the synagogue. Why would that matter? Why does it matter if you're on their list? Because in many of those settlements, the Romans gave the Jews special privileges. Uh, they were exempt from certain things. They were exempt from certain Roman worship. They were exempt from military service. They were exempt from certain cultural practices because the Romans understood we have to kind of give them leeway or they'll, they'll revolt. So they gave the Jews special privileges, and they gave other groups this too, but they, they understood that these Jews won't do this, so we're going to let them be exempt. The only way you were exempt was if you were on the synagogues list. You were considered part of the Jewish community. And one of the threats against the Christian church that was being actually fulfilled was that if you proclaim Jesus as the Messiah, we're striking you from our list and we're basically throwing you to the Romans and uh, you're you're not going to be exempt from uh, Roman worship anymore or emperor worship or whatever they're doing at the time. You're going to have to do all the things they tell everyone else to do and you're not going to have the covering or protection of saying, well, we're part of the Jewish community. You're not part of our community anymore. And if you all you had living in an occupied state, you know, the, the Romans have been oppressing you. Before then, the Seleucids have been oppressing you. The, uh, Alexander the Great brought his rule in. All of this, you've been oppressed for, for centuries, for, for years and years, and all you've got is your faith and your family. And now, your faith is saying you're not part of us anymore. And your family is saying you're not part of us anymore. Your culture is throwing you out. Many people believed in Jesus, but we're afraid to be cast out. We find that in our same day and age today. We're afraid of being separate. We're, we're afraid of being pushed to the edge of society. But I want to read you what he says. He tells him to be free from the love of money. In fact, let me read it. Well, he tells them to be free from the love of money, and he says, here's why. Because he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you. So we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be carried away by varied and strange teachings for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Now here's why that's important. He says, therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. So he's saying Jesus became our sacrifice, not a temporary sacrifice that you got to do next year, but a permanent sacrifice. He says that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. Here's what they would do to that animal that bore the sins of the people. They would impute the sins of the people on that animal and drive the animal out of the camp in a symbolic and and actually powerful demonstration of what Jesus would someday do for us. That he'd be bearing our sin and be kicked out of the the, the camp, being driven outside of the camp. He says Jesus was killed outside of the camp for us. In every sense of the word, I mean, he was crucified outside the city. He was uh, 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 ostracized from the very people who should have received him. He said he came to his own, and those that were his own did not receive him. He was pushed to the fringes, and crucified at the hands of the Gentiles. Yet he did that for us. Then it says, he suffered outside the gate, so let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, reproach means the disgust and the shame that people put on you because you're different, because you're like Jesus. Jesus said, if they hate me, they'll hate you too. And you you read that and you go, how could anybody hate Jesus? Because Jesus showed us what humanity was supposed to be. He came to restore to us what was lost. He came to show us not just a new way to be human, not just a new way, but actually the original way. He did what Adam couldn't do. He became the last Adam, the one who showed us this is what you were created for. How many times did he call himself the son of man? He finishes this by saying, let's go outside the camp and meet him, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. I want you to see that promise at the middle of it. We are not just saying, fine, I'm willing to be different. I'm willing to leave the camp. I'm willing to be kicked out of the camp for Jesus. We are saying, I'm going to go out and I'll find him there. I am not going outside the camp alone. I'm going outside the camp to meet Jesus. If I'm with him, that's, that's all that matters. Jesus says this in the sermon on the plane, and, and not the airplane, but the planes, like the flat place. In the book of Luke, Chapter 6, turning his gaze in verse 20 towards his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Notice he doesn't say when they do that because you're doing something wrong. He says when you do that for me. There's a big difference. There's a lot of people who bear reproach and shame and scorn because they're doing things that bring this on themselves. But he's not talking about that. He's talking about when you do this, when you're living before me and because of my name you're doing this, then you're blessed. He says, be glad in that day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Before we close, I want to read that to you in in Eugene Peterson's Uh, paraphrase of the scripture because I think it brings it out in such a wonderful way. He he took that and he kind of worded it in a different way based on uh, his own, you know, research and scholarship. And and I find it interesting the way he says it. He says, then he spoke and said, you're blessed when you've lost it all. God's kingdom is for the finding. You're blessed when you're ravenously hungry. Then you're ready for the messianic meal. You're blessed when the tears flow freely. Joy comes with the mourning. Count yourself blessed every time someone cuts you down or throws you out, every time someone smears or blackens your name to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort, and that person is uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Skip like a lamb if you like. For even though they don't like it, I do. And all of heaven applauds. And know that you're in good company. My preachers and witnesses have always been treated like this. And therein lies the core. Be glad when they treat you this way because they may not like it, but I do. And heaven applauds. That's the core of what we've been talking about for the past few weeks. The core of what we've been talking about is not being different for the sake of being different. It's living a life that reflects what Jesus has done for you, that reacts to what Jesus has done for you. Living a life where heaven applauds. Living a life where God says, I like that. That's my Son, that's my daughter. Those are my people. The only way you can do that, you can't do that in your own. The only way we can do that is by the grace of God because of what Jesus did. We can't do it without him. We have to do it with him. And if you've ever heard a message like we've been preaching in the past past few weeks and you've said, I guess I just got to do a little bit more myself. I guess I don't do enough. Then you're probably missing the core and the heart of everything, which is in my own strength, I can do nothing. But through him, all things are possible. If you would say, Lord, I want to know you. The reason I want to be different is because I want to be like you, and you're different. The reason I'm willing to be an outcast is not because I like life on the fringe. It's because I love you. And you said, if they cast you out, they'd cast me out. And they hated you, they hate me. Well, I'm willing. My love for you is greater than my fear of not being loved by that person. And because of my love for you, listen, I'm going to love them. I'm going to love my enemies. He says that's in the same uh, um, teaching, that we should love our enemies. We should pray for those who persecute, persecute us. See, that's what it means to be like Jesus. You can love your friends. You can love your neighbors. But only someone who's been recreated in Christ, who's living in Him, abiding in Him, only someone who is being empowered by the Spirit of God could actually love your enemies, could actually pray and bless those who are persecuting you. And if it doesn't look like that, it's not Jesus. If your approach to holiness is a pharisaical approach where you are just saying, I am going to react to the world, I don't like it, I don't like them, and you just want to be different from them, you'll have no love, you'll have no life in your message, there'll be no no actual transforming power in what you say or what you do. But if you are saying, I I want to be like Jesus, I'm willing to come out from my culture, from my ways, from my upbringing, and I want to be close to you, Jesus. I want to be like you, Father. And that's your heart. Then the Bible says in Philippians, work work out that salvation that's within you. Live it out. For it is God. Work it out with fear and trembling, like with reverence and honor. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I love you, church. I want to pray with you today. Father God, will you take our hands, our feet, our mouths, Use them for your glory. Lord, would you take our hearts, transform them from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Lord, we want to be used by you. We want to be sons and daughters to you. We already have been made sons and daughters because of your sacrifice, but we want to live like sons and daughters. Lord, help us not to seek uh, the outcome without seeking you. Just to say, well, I want to live this way without knowing that living this way just means to live with you, to know you and the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your sufferings, knowing that you are working in us. God, we love you so much. And we thank you that you called us out of darkness and into light. In Jesus' name, amen.